So, we have two left after today in this series, to Just Jesus. Today we're talking about the Ascended Jesus. Now, if you've been paying attention, which I'm sure you all have, you may have noticed that we've actually skipped from dying to ascension without actually rising again. I'd like to make it clear that this is not any kind of theology that Burlington holds to. We do believe that Jesus rose again. Hallelujah. And we will be looking at it in a couple of weeks' time. Um, but because Otti came last week and we had our Romanian visitors, we took the opportunity of hearing what Otti had to say. So we've skipped to ascension, but I hope you'll find that uh, it works. It works, as long as we know in our hearts that Jesus is risen from the dead. Hallelujah. That would have been good then. Hallelujah. Um, okay, let's pray before I start. Father God, thank you. Oh, I don't know. Thank you seems so inadequate, actually, to you enthroned on high. And as we've read at the beginning of Acts, how you went through the clouds, physically, bodily, through the clouds, and went to, to take your place in heaven. We're astonished that you who sits at the right hand of the Father, who keeps this universe in place, who's created the whole of creation, the universe, the solar systems, who reigns over all things, every being, every human, every animal, every element of creation. And yet, you are here with us this morning, wanting to speak into our lives individually. We are astonished. But I pray that you will open our hearts, and I pray that you will take the words that I speak and make them your own and not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So over the last few couple of months now, quite a while, we've been looking at the character and attributes of Jesus. And I hope that it's become apparent that Jesus was indeed fully human. He knows what it was to be one of us, to walk this earth and to be involved in life as a man. But also, he is fully God, and we've explored that too. We've looked at Jesus divine, and, and in other weeks, we've, we've known that God, Jesus is fully God. Well, it's in the ascension that these come together. As Jesus is seated in the right hand of God, he is enthroned as Lord of Lords, and yet still, he's grounded in humanity. There is a man on the throne of God. The throne room of the universe, the throne room of the God of the universe. And today I want to explore something of what that means for us today. Now, as I said earlier, if that seems a bit remote from everyday life, as I suppose it could do, please don't switch off now. It's not. It's about our personal interaction now every day with the living God and the King of Kings. In fact, don't tell Simon I said this, but this of all weeks really is about our daily interaction with Jesus living now every day. I've been amazed actually at how little is written about this period between Jesus rising again and being ascended into heaven and his second coming, which we're going to look at next week. There's very little, I've, in the, the tomes and theological textbooks in Spurgeon's library, there's very little, or in comparison, written about this period and what Jesus is doing now, how it affects our life today. We look forward to his second coming when he will come back to judge the living and the dead, and yet we completely miss out the bit in between. 
Where, after all, is Jesus now? Is he remote and silent, biding his time until he comes back again? No. No, he isn't. Let's consider the ascension then. The passage uh, Len read for us earlier. I wonder how Jesus felt as he knew he was returning to his father. Well, we see a glimpse of this um, in, in what he was saying in, when, as, when, we, when we hear him speaking to his father at the Last Supper. Okay. Um, let me just skip back to this piece in Acts um, that Len read for us. It must have been strange for the disciples on that day that we heard about. Imagine the man that they had lived and worked with for three years and who was their brother and master to them, lifted before their very eyes bodily through the clouds. And, and you can imagine them standing there. And, and men of Galilee, says the angels. Oh yes, and by the way, there were angels there too. Why are you standing there looking into the sky? I love this snapshot of the disciples gazing up into the sky after their master, not knowing, really knowing what to do. In in my imagination, I hear them saying to each other something like, oh no, what's he doing now? He had taken them by surprise a few times. He's gone. Now what? He had, of course, told them he would be going. But they didn't expect it to be yet. He thought he was going to do some other stuff first. And how on earth were they going to manage on earth without him? And I also like my imagination to take me a little bit further and think what the angels might have said to to them at that moment. You know, he did tell you he was going. Weren't you listening? He also said that he was going to make provision for you and that you would be responsible for carrying out his work in his absence. And he also said that he would always be with you. But no, none of that was on the disciples' mind, was it? Their their bewilderment was clear. So we've got them standing there, gazing upwards, thinking, oh, what do we do now? So let's have a closer look at what was happening. I've come down. This is a huge topic, massive, massive, massive. Um, But I've just come, and we've only got a short time this morning, so I've just come down to three key questions that I'd like to look at with you. Where is Jesus? Who are we in all this? How does this affect us and who we are today and how we live? And specifically, in the light of this, what should we be doing? And how are we doing? I'll touch on that as well. Okay, where is Jesus? Well, Jesus is back home in a sense, isn't he? When Alice was four years old, she was spending the weekend with Grandma. While she was there, Grandma took her to the park. It had been snowing all night and it was very beautiful. Grandma said, Alice, doesn't it look as if an artist has painted this scene just for us? To which Alice replied, yes, they did, Grandma. God did it. And do you know what? He did it with his left hand. (laughs) Grandma was perplexed. What makes you think God painted this scene with his left hand, Alice? Well, she said, Anna, that was her Sunday school teacher, said last week that Jesus sits on God's right hand. (laughs) So, where is Jesus? He's back home. He's sitting at God's right hand. 
I wonder what it felt to be, to be Jesus going home. We get a glimpse of that, of this, here in these verses in John, where we hear Jesus speaking to his father on that very subject, that very subject, that he's going home to be with his father. This is at the Last Supper. He says, he's, in his prayer, he says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before the world began. So he's going back to familiar things. He knew his time on earth was coming to an end and he was returning to the glory that he had known since the beginning, that he had set aside in order to come to earth. If you remember a few weeks ago, we considered Jesus' emotions and we discovered that he was an emotional guy. Well, if Easter was the most exciting day for the disciples when Jesus rose again, I guess the day of ascension was probably it for Jesus. He was and is, after all, the creator God who had given up so much to come to earth, and he was heading home. Philip Yancey, in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, compares these moments to a soldier returning across the ocean from a long and bloody war or to an astronaut shedding his spacesuit to gulp in the familiar atmosphere of Earth, home at last. But Jesus did not vanish in and shut the door, as many of us would do. He remained actively involved in the work of his disciples and promised, I am with you, even to the end of the age. Well, okay, Jesus was going home, and in, in these verses in Daniel, we get a glimpse of what happened when he got there. He is enthroned. Jesus is back home, and he's enthroned. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led to, into his presence. I guess there's a welcome there, isn't there? He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom one that will never be destroyed. Praise God. So we find him with authority, glory, and sovereign power, and that's where he is now. All nations and all people worshipping him forever and ever. And as Andrew led us in worship this morning, we've been joining in that worship around the throne. It's clear, Jesus is now on the throne, reigning over all things. So, Jesus is back home, he's enthroned, and he is above all. These verses in Ephesians talk about, explicitly about Jesus being above all things. For above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age and the age that is to come, and so on. But sometimes, I think, we're not always very comfortable with acknowledging verbally that Jesus' rightful place is above all rule and authority. But if we are to worship him completely, we must give him his rightful place. These verses make it clear that Jesus is above all rule and authority and all things are under his feet, all things, no exceptions. Therefore, if it is God's desire that everybody acknowledge Jesus, it must be our desire as well. 
but sometimes we feel uncomfortable with that. Hindus speak of the Lord Krishna. Buddhists speak of the Lord Buddha. But we cannot accept these claims. He has no rivals for the top slot. And he is the only way to God. When we try and water down that truth or dilute it, we deny the sovereignty of Jesus and we betray our king. And yet, while all this is true, if we're not careful, this talk of enthronement and sovereignty can make Jesus seem distant from us today. And this danger was emphasised for me last week. Last week, Phil and I were on holiday and we were in uh, Wales for part of that time. Very beautiful. And uh, we went to Cardiff and to the Welsh Folk Museum there, uh, St. Fagans. I recommend it to you. It's free. It's wonderful. It's just fantastic. And the way it works is that they have painstakingly um, taken down historic buildings from all over Wales and rebuilt them brick by brick within the museum. So you can wander around this large area, um, visiting, uh, walking into to, uh, cottages and houses and factories, and well, not factories, but what, all sorts of places, shops, little shops, all sorts, from anything from the um, ooh, 17th century right up until the 1950s and 60s. It's an amazing place. Um, one of the prize exhibits has just opened there, and it is the St... I'm not going to get this right. I'm sorry, apologies to Welsh people here. But it's the St. Taylor's Church, which features wall paintings from about 1520. And I, this is... It's not a great picture, because I took it on my, my, uh, my phone. But I wanted to show you this picture, which is one of the wall paintings on the church wall from 1520. Um, It's been carefully researched and renovated using methods and material very close to those used originally and depicts Jesus ascended. I thought I'd bring it to show you how he was seen at the time. It's very similar to other paintings of the period. And I was interested in it because it shows Jesus as king, yes, but look how disinterested and aloof he appears. My reading of scripture, on the contrary, is that Jesus is actively reigning and ruling over all creation. In fact, we know from Colossians 1 and elsewhere that he is sustaining the universe and has ultimate control. Unlike this guy, who to me looks as if he couldn't care less. One of my cousins has done um, a lot of research on our family history. I've been looking for an opportunity to tell you this. And um, this is on my mother's side. And apparently, I am a descendant of the Black Prince. (laughs) Oh, yes. Edward, Prince of Wales. Who said they always knew there was something? (laughs) Edward, Prince of Wales, was born on June the 15th, 1330, at Woodstock Palace in Oxfordshire. And he is buried in the crypt of Canterbury Cathedral. Actually, I won't dwell on this too much because he wasn't really a very nice guy. Uh, but let's just remember the royal link, okay, and forget the rest. The, but the point I'm making, really, is that my descendancy from the Black Prince is remote and absolutely meaningless. Unlike my current relationship with the King of Kings, who sits at God's right hand right here, right now and who is actively involved in my life every day, here and now, 
through the work of his Holy Spirit. Let's look a bit closer then at the real everyday connection between us and reigning King Jesus. So who are we in all of this? We are beings of great worth. Question two. We are beings of great worth. One of the key links between us now and the reigning king is this we find in Timothy here. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man, Jesus Christ. A man sits on the throne of heaven, fully qualified to rule over all creation. One of our own. One who is acquainted with our struggles and difficulties, our pain. Some of you might remember how affirmed and valued the Polish people, the Polish people felt when a Polish man was enthroned as Pope John Paul in 1978. That was a long time ago, but I can still remember, even though I was very young at the time, (laughs) that um, it really was important to the Polish people that they had a Polish pope. That was John Paul II. How much more affirmed are we by having one of our own sitting on the throne of heaven? Our humanity is represented in the community of God. Because Jesus is our representative, there is a sense in which we sit in the heavenly places, stand in glory, share his reign. This elevates the value of humankind. Any insult to the humanity of a person, any treating of a human as though they were worthless, as though they were rubbish, is blasphemy an insult to the nature of God, which he has taken upon himself eternally. If you think about that, this must have implications, clear implications for how we care for each other, how we care for fellow human beings, and how we care for ourselves. So in answer to the question, who are we in all this? We are people of worth, great worth. We are beings of great worth. We are also responsible. Here in Corinthians, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We are Christ's ambassadors. So when Jesus went back home, he passed the baton on to his disciples, and therefore on to us. I've often thought it would have been easier if Jesus, after he'd died and risen, had just stuck around, don't you think? After all, don't take this the wrong way, but having Jesus right here in front of me, loving me, showing me miracles, healing people, would be an awful lot easier to see God incarnate, to know and understand that God was at work, than seeing the what I have to depend on now, which is seeing God in other people. You guys, you know, you're great. I do see Jesus in you, but you know, if we had Jesus here, it would have been easier, wouldn't it? But instead, I need to see Jesus in, in you, and you need to see him in me. We are responsible, we are responsible for his work on earth now. It's strange to think of this all-powerful king needing anything at all, but actually he needs us to do his work. We are Christ's body, his voice, his feet, his hands, yet sometimes it feels like we're all fingers and thumbs. Who are we in this? We are responsible, but we are not responsible alone. We are empowered. 
I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. You see, they'd forgotten he'd said that, hadn't they? The disciples had forgotten that Jesus had said it was for their good he was going away. Unless I go, the counsellor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. I just want to read you a piece from Philip Yancey's book, uh, which sums this up. I kept trying to find ways of putting it myself, and I thought, no, I'm going to read you what Philip Yancey said, because I couldn't make it any better. Okay. He said, Jesus left few traces of himself on earth. He wrote no books or even pamphlets. A wanderer, he left no home or even belongings that could be enshrined in a museum. He did not marry, settle down, and begin a dynasty. We would, in fact, know nothing about him except for the traces he left in human beings. That was his design. The law and the prophets had focused like a beam of light on the one who, had, who, the one who was to come, and now that light, as if hitting a prism, would fracture and shoot out a human spectrum of waves and colours. Six weeks later, the disciples would find out that Jesus ha- what Jesus had meant by the words, for your good, in these verses. As Augustine put it, you ascended before our eyes and we turned back grieving only to find you in our hearts. Killing Jesus was like trying to destroy a dandelion seed head by blowing on it. And this, to, to reiterate that point, here in John, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus talks of one death producing increased life. In this one man's death, many more in the form of his disciples, including you and I, became empowered to do his work. And not only his work, but even greater things. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do even greater things because I am going to the Father. We've seen that from Augustine. You descended before our very eyes. You ascended before our very eyes, and we turned back grieving, only to find you in our hearts. We are empowered. So, we come to our final question: What should we be doing in the light of all this? We've looked at where Jesus is now. We've looked at what this means for us. What should we be doing? Firstly, we should be making him known. These words of the Great Commission are very familiar to us, perhaps too familiar sometimes. A major part of being responsible for God's work is telling others about Jesus. And we've been working hard on this lately at Burlington, haven't we, Through, with Julie's help in particular. It is the responsibility of every one of us to tell people about Jesus. We cannot and must not leave it to the evangelism team If you're not sure about this, if you want help, because it's not always easy, is it? Talk to Julie about going on one of her courses, borrowing a book, uh, finding out more. It's about making it easier, more natural to talk to others about Jesus. Come to Digging Deeper next week when I'll be giving you some tips and helping you along in talking about your faith and sharing it with others. I'm not attempting for one minute to do this whole area of our responsibility to tell others about Jesus here to do it justice. But I I want to move on to 
what we should be doing. We should be sharing God's love. Remember, we are God's, Jesus' arms and legs. We are his presence in this earth, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Sharing God's love in this work and making a difference in the lives of the poor is our responsibility as Christians. But it seems to be one that some of us forget some of the time. I know there's a lot of good work going on here, and I know that, for example, just as one example, um, one of the small groups is doing a lot of work with some very needy people, and, um, and that's great. But this verse talks about us needing to help the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the sick and imprisoned. But I guess in order to bring that up to date, we could add to that list. We could add those who live in fear of debt or violence or bailiffs or those who experience unemployment or divorce or abuse, knife crime, drug addiction. I could go on. Are we taking our responsibility seriously enough in the light of who we are serving and what we are commissioned to do? Clearly here again, we see our responsibility in sharing God's love. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, and said receive the Holy Spirit. This was after the res- resurrection and before the ascension, when Jesus appeared to the disciples in the upper room. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. You, you sitting here today in Burlington in July 2008. Yet as we look at the church today, I find myself asking, do we look as if we believe in those words? That Jesus has in fact sent us to do his work and equipped us with the Holy Spirit in order to do it. I wonder if you saw in the press last week the Archbishop of York, John Sentamu, um, the Daily Mail had been criticising the Church of England for navel-gazing, navel, and he was agreeing with the Daily Mail. I thought it was notable because, not only, but partly because it was unusual to see the Archbishop of um, Canterbury, um, no, Archbishop of York, sorry, um, agreeing with the Daily Mail. I thought that was fairly unusual. Dr. Sentamu was saying that we spend too much time worrying about our own internal affairs. In this case, it was the arguments for and against the appointment of women bishops. I'm not saying that's not important, but we can spend too much energy focusing on internal stuff and policy and theology even at the expense of doing the work that Jesus is sending us out to do. He said this, Jesus is on the streets weeping. He said, did you see the newspaper article that said that the church is navel-gazing while our children are being slaughtered and killed? We have confused synodical language with governance, with parliament and everything else that goes with it. So I am praying very hard for a fresh understanding in the church. Let's join with that. I am praying very hard for a fresh understanding in the church, a fresh understanding in me about what this means for us every day. Taking up the challenge that the ascended Jesus has laid down is tough, but there is no option if we are serious about our faith. It will mean different things to different people, but it is very likely to require of us sacrifice and discomfort at some level. 
and it will involve making a difference in the lives of other people in some way. So you see, if we don't get involved, if we don't do this, if we don't make a difference, what Dostoevsky said is actually quite, is true and it's frightening. If there is no God, if there's no influence of God in society, then anything is permissible. If there is no God, then anything is permissible. We have such a responsibility here. I looked for an example of someone who had taken up this challenge. And I was looking, I was thinking about all the, the, we know about lots of people who have laid down their lives, lots of Christians who have laid down their lives to make a difference for others. But a couple of weeks ago, I, I have learnt of someone else that I hadn't heard of before. Um, Jonathan Barnes uh, took, uh, that made you look up, Jonathan. Hi. <laughs> um, but it led a prayer meeting a couple of weeks ago on um, the work of George Muller. We're talking about living our dreams, praying for our dreams. Um, and he told the story of George Muller. He was a man who put everything aside personally to show God's love and to make a difference. And I thought I'd tell you a little bit about him. He certainly inspired me. Um, this guy, when he was growing up, when he was a teenager and in his early 20s, he was a really bit of a rogue. He was a womanizer, he was a drinker, he was a liar, a cheat, he stole from his father. When his mother was dying, he was out playing cards. He wasn't a nice guy. But in his 20s, he met with the Holy Spirit. He became a Christian and his life changed. Not overnight, he said. He didn't suddenly become a new person, but over time, it dawned on him what a responsibility he had in order to make a difference in this world for Jesus' sake. He, was a, he became a pastor, but his main work was setting up orphanages and looking after children, because at that time, um, there was, in, in the late 1800s, there was lots of destitution on the streets, there was children dying because they had nowhere to live, no food to eat. And he sort of thought, this cannot be right. As a Christian, I must do something about this. But he had no resources. In fact, he had less than the usual resources of a pastor because at that time, a pastor was paid by charging rent for the pews. I think we might bring that back in. So if you came in on a Sunday morning, you had to put some money in the box to pay for your pew. And he said, no, this can't be right. Um, people having to pay to come to church. Let's stop that. I'm just going to rely on God to pay me my keep and to help me to, to feed my, myself and my wife. So he stopped the income from the church and he never asked for a penny for that or for the orphanages that were going to become so huge. Never asked for a penny. All he did was pray. He just prayed for resources. He felt God was laying on his heart to start an orphanage and he just started praying. And the money started coming in, just like that. Money, resources, equipment, buildings, premises, people who were going to work with him, and all he did was pray. It's a wonderful story. Um, but he, he, gradually, gradually, he built up five orphanages. He cared for many, many orphanages, got them off the street, um, and he made sure they got, that when, he left, when they left his care, they went into a profession and they were continually cared for and they all heard the word of God. So he, filled, he fulfilled the, not only the aspect I've talked about as being our responsibility to show God's love, he also 
not that it's entirely separate, but he taught them about Jesus. And many of them became Christians. He loved them with God's love. He saw many miracles of God's provision. Uh, One day, for instance, the the children were hungry. He didn't know what he was going to feed them on. And there's a knock at the door, and it was the local baker who said, "I, I just knew I had to bring you this bread. I just knew you needed it. And there was bread for all the children. It's, in, it's inspiring. Um, so I recommend the book to you. There's already a, there's already a waiting list to borrow Jonathan's after I, well, I've finished it, but uh, you know, if you speak nicely to them, he might lend it to you. Oh, dear, what have I done? Okay, don't worry about that. Um, the book's called The Robber of the Cruel Streets. Now, this is how George Muller describes his experience of coming to know Jesus. He talks, of, he talks of giving up his own life to live for Jesus. So to put himself in fully in the hands of Jesus and to, to be used by the Holy Spirit. He said of this day, it was a day when I died, utterly died. I died to George Muller. His opinions, preferences, tastes and will. Died to the world, its approval or censure. Died to the approval or blame of even my brethren and friends. And since then, I studied to show myself approved only to God. Taking up the challenge that the ascended Jesus has laid down is tough, but there is no option if we're serious about our faith. It will mean different things to different people, but it will require sacrifice and discomfort. Um, of course, we're not, all impl- we're not all expected to do something as huge as this, but really, how, how closely, I say to myself, do I have to look into my life to find what I'm sacrificing, what I'm doing, what I'm, what I'm doing to... Uh, oh. To be in relation, this relationship with Jesus, what am I doing for him as his hands and feet? Okay, that's our three questions done. Don't let us be like the disciples were on the day of the ascension, gazing up into the sky sort of gormlessly, wondering what to do next. There is no need. Jesus made it very clear. Jesus is now seated at God's right hand. He has given us the responsibility of doing his work, of telling others about the way of salvation, and given us the responsibility of showing God's love in this world by looking after the poor and those in need. We need, though, in order to do that, to submit to his authority, not just get on with it ourselves. That would be futile. We need to take up the responsibility he has given us and get on with the job. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to equip us to set ourselves aside and get on with the job. For now that Joe Jesus is no longer here, we are all he's got. We are all he's got if God's love is going to make a difference in this world. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning realising that we don't always do what you would have us do. Sometimes we're so busy doing the right things we forget to come before you and say and offer ourselves as your hands and feet, your voice in this world. Father, help us to remember who you are, King of kings, Lord of lords. Help us to offer ourselves in completeness, 
to you, to sweep aside ourselves, our own desires, our own agenda, our own wants, to sweep them aside and to allow your Holy Spirit to motivate us to do your will, to make a difference in this world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.